Today we're going to talk about the characteristics of centeredness, the characteristics of centeredness. It is so important that if you are trying to go somewhere, anywhere you're trying to go in life, you have to know some of the details and the qualities and directions to get to that place in wherever you're trying to go. The other day, my wife asked me to pick something up from Target, and I was convinced that this item was not at Target, and so I texted her back. I said, it's not here. It doesn't exist. It's, there's no, I've searched high and low, every square inch of Target. It, it's not here, and she knows how crazy of a thought that was because she has actually purchased that item from Target a number of different times, and I said, I asked an employee here. They sent me into an aisle. It wasn't there, and so what she did is she kind of responds back, and she tells me exactly which aisle to go to to find this specific item. But that's kind of what we need when we're on this journey, when we're trying to go from point A, point a to point B, is we need these specific instructions, these details that will help us to get to where we're trying to go. And so in this series, we've been talking about this idea of being centered. And I think that that word maybe has a different connotation. Maybe people define it in different ways. And so what it means for us is getting to that place of inner peace in our life. But the problem that I see a lot, I think, is maybe in, in our world, we come to that conclusion about inner peace in our heart and our life only when all the priorities in our life seem to be in balance, right? Our relationships happen to be going well at this season, and our work environment is going well. And all these other areas that we deem as our highest priorities, they're in balance. And when that happens, then we can determine in our life, oh, I finally feel like I'm at a place of peace in my life. But the problem with that theory is that it is such a rare occasion where all the different aspects of your life happen to be in balance with one another because it takes one small thing to throw everything off balance. And so today we're going to talk about the characteristics of centeredness and what that really means. And I want to suggest, sort of reiterate, what we talked about last week is that centeredness has more to do with a person than it does to, with your circumstances. Because if we're always basing our peace on our circumstance, we will be people who have very little peace in our life for any consistent amount of time. And so today we're going to look in the book of Colossians, which is in the New Testament. The New Testament is the second half of the Bible that deals primarily with the life of Jesus and the development and the expansion of the early church. And we'll be reading out of a letter that was written to a community of people in Colossae. And it was written by someone named Paul. And Paul was one of the leaders in the early church. And he had such a dramatic influence in the Mediterranean world. He was helping start churches. He was like a venture capitalist, but in like a spiritual sense. Right? He was spiritually starting all these little startups all throughout the Mediterranean world. And he was such an influential person that some of the Roman governors and authorities of that time imprisoned him because of his influence over that area. And so he's writing this letter to a community of people living in Colossae from prison. And today we're going to talk about these characteristics. And it's sort of coming on the top of this overarching theme throughout this entire letter. Paul is really wanting to encourage this community of people to lean into their faith a little bit more, to take a, a few more steps of commitment in their life toward faith and their commitment to Jesus. 
And the way that he does it is by trying to reframe their picture of Jesus, that he is actually bigger and grander than what they are currently viewing him as. And so today we're going to sort of tag on top of that thought. Characteristics of centeredness. A life that is centered. And so we'll begin in Colossians 1, verse 9. If you don't have your Bibles, we'll have all the sentences listed here on the screen, and you can follow along with me. It says, so we have not stopped praying for you since we first heard about you. So we're going to pause there for a moment. And I think what I love about the way that Paul introduces this thought is really he begins to frame his affection for this community of people. And he says, ever since we heard about your existence, and he's talking about himself and Timothy, the authors of this letters and some of the other leaders in the early church. He said, ever since we heard of your existence, we haven't ceased to pray for you. And I think what a big deal this is for Paul to write this statement to this community of people because he had actually never met them. He didn't know anyone in the church except for the leader whose name was Epaphras. And so he's writing this letter, and it's almost like he says, we, I, ever since we heard about you, we have never ceased to continue to pray for you. I don't know if you guys remember the first crush you ever had, and uh, we don't have to name names and it doesn't matter, you're, you're, be, you're past that. And maybe you're married to your first crush that you've ever had. But do you remember the feeling of that crush where it's like you met them and maybe you shook their hand and you couldn't stop thinking about that crush. It was like on, they were on your mind constantly, all day long. When you went to bed at night, you were dreaming about that crush and the next opportunity that you would have to encounter their presence in that moment. But it's almost this thing that sort of consumes you and in a way, it's not a romantic relationship, but Paul was consumed with his love for these early churches and what he saw God doing in their community. And so he was committed to pray for them constantly. And that is so significant, such a significant thing to say because prayer is such a huge part of the life of faith. And I wonder how many things or how many people do you pray for every single day? How many people do you Think about in that way every single day. We usually do not do things daily for people we don't love deeply. Have you ever thought about that? Like your routine is typically geared around the things that you love and value the most. And I think that is particularly true when it comes to our prayer life. The people that you are praying for daily are the people that you love and care for deeply. And so I want this to sort of frame Paul's affection for this church that he loves and cares for them so deeply. And so then this is what he prays for. This is the characteristics of a centered life that Paul begins to pray for this community. The first thing is that he prays that they would be smart. You guys are thinking, what? What on earth does that have to do with anything? But this is what Paul says. He says, we ask God to give you complete knowledge of his will and to give you spiritual wisdom and understanding. IQ has become such an important thing in our culture, right? It's such an important thing to some people in terms of their own personal self-evaluation. But what's interesting is that in recent years, a lot of tech companies and these innovative organizations are beginning to identify that there are more, there are other types of intelligence. There are sometimes social intelligence or emotional intelligence, relational intelligence. There are all these different types of qualities about a person 
that is not tied just to, just to the factual information that you know, but, but your ability to engage with people at a, a number of different levels. Recently, a number of months ago, I took uh, a test, a survey, that rated my emotional intelligence on a scale of 1 to 10. What do you, what do you guys think I got? I'm just kidding. I don't want to hear that answer. I don't want to hear what you guys think about my emotional intelligence. Um, but they're testing for a lot of these things. And part of it is because it feeds into a healthy culture and a healthy organization. And so what I think that Paul was praying for in this little line, this, this verse, is not emotional intelligence or not that they would be intellectually smart, but he was praying for their spiritual intelligence. He was praying that they would have spiritual intelligence. And, and this is sort of my working definition of what spiritual intelligence is. It is the product of knowing God's plan, being faithful to do your part, and reaping the life that results from that commitment. It is the product of knowing God's plan, being faithful to do your part, and reaping the life that results from that commitment. In other words, what you learn in the process of being obedient to God's direction in your life. Because this is what Paul says. He's praying that they, he would have these things. I want you to know God's will and your life and, and how it fits into that story. And ultimately what he's saying is I want you to have an understanding of your purpose. I want you to have complete knowledge of God's will. And I feel like in our culture, that is something that all of us long for, right? We go to bed at night. We've lived a successful life. And maybe we made an impact in our tech jobs. But at the end of the day, what, what does that all matter? What contribution is our life really making to this world? And so Paul is saying, I want you to have complete understanding of God's will and then your story and your life and how it fits into God's story. And then he says, I pray for spiritual wisdom. And I really think that this is one of those hard to understand abstract kind of thought. What does it mean? In school, I struggled at math. And this happened to me all the time. I would be in class. In the few moments that I was paying attention to the teacher and they were explaining a, a math problem and I would get it and I would like, I say, okay, I got this whole math thing. And then I would go home and I would look at the math book and I'm like, this, I think this is like the same type of problem, but I couldn't figure out how to do the problem. And I feel like this is one of those phrases in the Bible that when we talk about it on a Sunday morning, it kind of makes sense. And you're like, yeah, I get that. And then you go home and you read your Bible, and you're like, I don't understand what any of this is talking about. But Paul says, I pray for your spiritual wisdom. Wisdom in the Hebrew and Jewish context was not just about knowledge. It was never just about knowledge, but it was knowledge applied. It was the right knowledge applied at the right moment. And that is what wisdom was. And so what Paul is saying is that we want you to have not only the right knowledge, but the application, the living out of that truth. There's a whole section in the Bible that is referred to as, as wisdom literature. And this entire section of the Bible is all about the practical observation of God's truth being exposed in everyday life. It's all about the practical observation of God's truth being exposed in everyday life. And this is true wisdom, right? Wisdom doesn't come from reading a book. That's information. Wisdom comes on the other side of life's experiences. Wisdom comes on the other side of challenges 
and victories and failures and effort and energy. Wisdom comes. Wisdom is like that nugget of truth that you have gained after a difficult season of your life. And you look back and you're like, okay, that is what God allowed for me to go through it for. It is that wisdom of truth on the other side of experience. It's that stuff in our life that if we hadn't gone through, we could have never understood. And so what Paul is saying, he's, I want you to understand and to know the feeling of faithfully following Jesus in your life. And I feel like in some respects, that's exactly what we are shooting for as a community of people here at Eden Church. Because it's not just coming on a Sunday morning and listening to, being what, listening to what's taught that's not where the greatest value is. The value is taking the truth that we hear and applying it to our life. That's sort of where the rubber meets the road. It sort of is a filter to help us understand if we really believe what we're listening to. And I believe that it's at that point when faith no longer becomes faith, but it becomes obedience and at that point of obedience, you begin to see God work in your life in a unique way that perhaps you've never witnessed before. But the challenge for so many of us is that we are sort of standing halfway in and halfway out. And that's okay. That's okay. Because I know there are so many of us here today that are exploring and trying to understand what this is all about, this whole Christian thing. And I love that because that is why we started a church, to create a space for people who want to just see what this Jesus thing is all about and feel like you can come and receive and get filled. But there is a limitation. And the limitation is like someone's telling you, God can help you do things that you've never done before. And let's use the analogy of water. And let's say you're standing in the boat. And they're saying, God can help you walk on water. And you're standing on the boat, but you place one foot on the water, but you're really just kind of dipping your toe in the water, and all the weight is still on the boat. And you haven't quite taken that step to see if God will deliver on the promises that we talk about. And you kind of have one foot dipped in, and that is always okay here at Eden. But we also have to know that if that continues to be our posture, that what we talk about here on a Sunday morning will never really make sense because it'll always kind of be like that's kind of some fantasy world that you're living in, believing in these supernatural promises, but the promises only will take place in that moment of faith commitment when you step out of the boat and you allow yourself to see if God will help you to walk on that water, whatever that water is in your life. Imagine, maybe a more relevant way of understanding this, imagine if you were using Siri, and someone said, hey, Siri is great, use it when you go to the city, it'll help you navigate through all the traffic, you won't have to worry about anything, it's awesome, it'll get you exactly where you're trying to go, and so you kind of fight it for a little bit because you're old school and you like to use your map, or you like to trust your memory, or whatever, you like MapQuest still. And so you're, you're trusting yourself, but then finally you give in. You're like, fine, I'm going to use Siri. We're going to see what this is all about. And so you plug in the destination into your phone, and it's a 30-minute drive. And so for the first 10 minutes, you are following everything that Siri tells you to do. And you get pretty close to your destination, but somewhere along the way, you become confident. 
and you're like, I know how to get where I'm trying to go from this point forward. And the last 20 minutes, you decide, I'm not even going to use Siri. And then you don't get to your appointment on time. You never get to where you're trying to go. You never get, and you're mad at your friends because they told you that if you trusted Siri, it's going to take you where you want to go. But the problem is, is that you only followed for the first 10 minutes. And you kind of jumped off board halfway through. And sometimes that is what the journey of faith looks like for some of us. Sometimes we jump off the train a little too soon before we give God a chance to show that he's taking us somewhere. And Paul is saying, I want you to know that is where spiritual wisdom comes from. It's not just from knowledge, but it is walking with God through difficult seasons of life and watching him show up in a way that you could have never imagined. And Paul goes on, he says, if you follow Jesus, this is what spiritual wisdom will produce in your life. Verse 10, it says, then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. All the while, you will grow as you learn to know God better and better. When you experience and know God, he will shape your life, and you can't help it. His goodness, every time you encounter him, will rub off on you every time, and you can't help it. I'm part of a life uh, eating group here at the church, and we meet every Sunday night. And if you're part of our eating group, Alpha, any reps today? All right, we got one. We got a few. All right, our crew, our crew here. But what's funny, at our group, we have these gold napkins. And everyone who's a part of the group knows what I'm talking about. They're napkins that have gold stripes down the top of them, and I love these napkins because they look beautiful, right? We are creating an environment, a friendly environment for people to come in and to be a part of this group. But the problem, the fundamental problem with these napkins is it's a napkin that is, uh, you're supposed to wipe stuff off with the napkin, right? You got food on your face, you wipe it off. The problem with this napkin is that it leaves gold dust on your fingers and on your face every time you use it. That's a problem, right, if you're a napkin. If you do the opposite of what you're supposed to do. But somehow this is connected to the point I'm trying to make. And that is, is that that is what God is like. That every time you engage with God, even just a little bit, he's going to leave a little bit of remnant in your heart and in your life. He's going to leave a little bit of truth, a little bit more truth than you had than when you first encountered him. And it's not on the outside, but he does it on the inside. And you begin to want what he wants. You begin to hate what he hates. And pretty soon, over time, as you get real close, you begin to finish each other's sentences. I've used that joke too many times in this room, and it has completely lost its effect. But it is true that the more that you begin to live out God's truth, it begins to align your heart with his heart. I think I have an, a, an Atondo family curse. And this is a curse. We, our, my family growing up, we had a lot of classic cars. Like my dad drove a 1960 Suburban. My brother drove a 1970 Chevelle. And I drove a 1967 Buick Skylark. And maybe you're like, oh, that's cool, a family of people who are driving old cars. But the problem is that when you drive a classic car and you don't have the money to fix it up and to completely restore it, that means you have a really unreliable car. And so by the time that I was 18, I had uh, an imbalanced amount. I had 
I was over-experienced in pushing broke-down cars on the side of the road. I had more experience than I ever needed for the rest of my life. And this is what I learned about pushing an old, heavy, classic car, is that it is not in the first push that you gain momentum. That's the hardest one, right, to move an object not in motion into motion. It's not the second push. It's not the third push or the fourth push, but it's somewhere around the fifth push and the sixth push that you start to gain momentum. And what happens is that over time, you begin to push this car, and you could almost stop pushing it, and it would continue to grow on its own. And what Paul is saying is that when you have spiritual wisdom and understanding, you are beginning to order your life in such a way that faith commitment after faith commitment after faith commitment, even though when you first start out, exploring faith in Jesus is nerve-wracking and scary and perhaps even overwhelming. But over time, one step of commitment after the other, one step of commitment after the other, you begin to grow and there becomes this momentum of spiritual development in your life. And Paul is sort of saying is that being spiritually, having spiritual wisdom is that process that you get to know God better and better over time as you interact with him and you grow in that commitment. And then he says, not only does he want us to be smart, have spiritual wisdom, but he wants us to be strong. He prays for their strength. He says, we also pray that you will be strengthened with all his glorious power so that you will have all the endurance and patience that you need. I pray that you'd have strength, endurance, and patience. Why on earth would Paul pray for these things? He's praying for these things because he knows the circumstance. The Colossians were living in a culture where they were the minority. And to maintain faith when you are the minority is an extremely difficult thing to do. And so he prays for their strength and for their endurance. Because what I have learned being a part of ministry is that every time I see someone making an increased commitment to faith. Maybe they're, for the first time, saying, I'm going to be a part of church on a regular basis, or I'm going to start reading my Bible on a regular basis every morning. I'm going to start praying. Every time someone makes a decision like that, you sort of notice this pushback in their life. There's perhaps someone in their life that are discouraging them from exploring faith in Jesus, or maybe there are circumstances that seem like they have never happened before, but for some reason, as soon as I start committing myself to Jesus, I'm experiencing some level of opposition in my world. And so Paul is letting them know that, at, that the pursuit of faith requires strength. And not strength from ourselves, but the strength that comes from God. Did you know that God never expects for you to do something that he will not equip you to accomplish? And that's what this verse reminds us of. That sometimes we are in seasons of great challenge and great difficulty, and we think, God, do you see what I'm going through? Do you see what's happening all around me? But God doesn't expect you to do it in your own strength. And that's the challenge is sometimes we try to do things on our own. That is like my thing that I struggle with week after week. Month after month, year after year, is struggling to do it in my own strength. And all along, God has said, I have promised to be your strength. I will never ask you to do something that I haven't equipped you to accomplish. Faith is not a one-time decision. But it's this lifelong process of formation that requires putting our yes on the table to Jesus in every circumstance. 
where there's that inkling in our heart to do it our way, to make our own decisions, to choose our own path. It is saying, no, God, this is your season. This is your life. This is your time. Regardless of the situation, I choose to follow you. Finally, Paul says, may you be filled with joy, always thanking the Father. He has enabled you to share in the inheritance that belongs to his people who live in the light. For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Jesus is centering their future on their past. He wants them to be grounded. He wants them not to forget where they came from. And so he's reminding them of their past, which isn't always a healthy thing because sometimes there are things that have happened in our past that we cling to that keep us from moving forward. But sometimes there are truths about who we are that were defined in, the pa- in our past that don't limit our progress but actually further it. And so Paul is saying, I hope that you would be filled with joy based on this truth. And the truth is that, that Paul was describing to this people, he's saying, you are a rescued people. You have been taken out of darkness and into the light. A number of weeks ago, I had the opportunity to go to Israel. It was an awesome opportunity, but one of the places that we visited was called a friend, the Friends of Zion Museum, and they had an exhibit that was called um, Light in the Darkness. And it was these stories of people all during the Holocaust who made these extraordinary contributions to bring people out of the darkness into, and into the light. And there was a lady, and her name was Irina Sendler. She was a young Catholic nurse, and she heard stories of all these children that were dying in these Jewish ghettos because of malnutrition and because of starvation and abuse. And so she said, how can I stand here and watch this happen to all of these children? And so the story goes that she forged her identification. She talked her way through some of the Gestapo and the Nazi guards that were guarding the entrance into the ghettos, and she made her way to some of the families. And the story says that she went from door to door, knocking door after door after door, and she would beg the parents to give her their children. And she was trying to convince them that if they did not give up their children, then their children were going to die someday in the concentration camps. And so door after door, she would knock, and she would plead with these parents. And time and time again, these parents would make this gut-wrenching decision to give their children to this woman who would then put them in small boxes and toolboxes and caskets, and she would put them in the back of an ambulance and rescue them out of the country. She would place them in orphanages, Christian homes, all over Europe. At the end, she had saved over 2,500 children's lives. And I think about those kids after that moment, that they were people who had been rescued, that their lives was, a, was of such great value that someone would go to such great lengths to make a sacrifice, to risk their own life so that theirs would be protected. And that is no different from who we are and what God has done for every single life, every single one of us, that we were the result of this great rescue where God brought us out of this life that sometimes feels hopeless and purposeless and meaningless, and he brought us into a world where our lives could be filled with hope and peace in the midst of some of the most chaotic circumstances. He brings us from the darkness and into the light. 
And I love this thought that God has prepared a table, like this beautiful banquet feast for us to enjoy and to be a part of, and he has an empty chair with our name in it. He has invited us into his home and into his family. And all he has asked us to do is to receive that gift. To allow for ourselves to be rescued by him. And that is what it means to have this centered life. A life that is anchored to an immovable truth in our world. But not anchored to the different circumstances in our life that shift so easily that there's no way for us to have full confidence and security in these things, but God has offered us a way to have security in him. So the question for all of us today is where are you centered? What is your life grounded upon? What is the security that brings comfort to your life, and is it something that is immovable? Where does your confidence come from? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning and the time for us to be together. We thank you that, God, you have provided a way for us to understand how to live a life full of peace and hope. And it is never easy because at every season there are new challenges that we don't expect. There are new challenges that we haven't had the wisdom of walking through. But what you have asked us to do, God, is to never forget who we are in you. That if we have placed our faith and our trust that you are enough, And God, you have our soul. You have our heart. In the midst of chaos, God, you provide peace. And I pray that if today there's anyone in the room that has never made that decision to take that one step out to trust you all the way, not halfway, but all the way, so that they would experience the value of, of what you offer in this life, God, I pray that today would be the day. But they say, I'm ready to make that step. I'm ready to trust in Jesus and watch their lives be transformed. God, we thank you for this time, and we pray for your blessing over this community. In Jesus' name, amen.